For those of you that don't know, my name is Joel, and I'm on the uh, teaching team here at uh, Midtown. And um, I'm really happy to be with you here today and wanted to make sure that I, I told you a little bit uh, about kind of how I'm feeling today, this morning, as I, as I head into this, this message with you. Uh, a few things that I would, I would share with you would be I want you to completely know that I, when I say this to you, I completely believe this when I, when I'm, with the next thing I'm going to say to you. And it's this, um, I believe that I am a completely average preacher. Uh, I really do believe that. And um, that was made very, a lot more even evident to me as I studied this last week in this piece of scripture that I'm going to share with you and the amount of inadequacies that were shown to me by the Lord this week in this, in this passage uh, are, are, are great. And uh, so... I want to make sure that you, you hear that from me today as, as I stand before you. I stand before you as a struggling warrior and uh, a man who has um, many scars and uh, who struggles as much as you do, who desperately needs what Randy was sharing with us before, a, a very supernatural um, presence and touch from God to to even preach to you this morning and everything that uh, would happen this morning would be because of what he would be doing and definitely not anything that I uh, would even be come close to being able to conjure up and so I thought it was important to be able to share that with you today could you turn with me to Colossians 3 We have been spending uh, quite a f few months in the book of Colossians. And um, this book is a perfect book for us to study as a church because many of the things that, that these people were dealing with at this time in history with Paul are the very things that we deal with, that Midtowners deal with on a very regular basis. We have talked a lot. Paul has a, and if you read the letters of Paul, especially Romans and many of the epistles, Paul has... God chose him for a reason because um, the thing that you hear from Paul would be a very, very effective and solid Christology. He talks a lot about Jesus. And we like that. We think that's awesome. And uh, that's the claim that uh, if we would ever get accused of that here at Midtown, that would probably be the best thing in the world. Is that we would sit, talk about the gospel and the cross and Christ too much. Paul is uh, one of those offenders if you will. And so he's talked here in verses 1 and 2. He's talked a lot about Christ. And now we move into chapter 3. And we move into some very, very hard and difficult truth in its reality. And if you look here at verse 1, let's go back to verse 1. We're going to specifically hit on verse 5. And we're going to take time through the next couple weeks to really parse out many of these things in 3 for us. But let go back to verse 1 of chapter 3 there where it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, in verse 2, set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. Okay? He's talking to these believers. He's trying to help them understand this new life that they have in Christ now. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So he kind of continues to set this solid Christo, right, foundation for what he wants to say. Now he gets into the guts of, oh, about the next uh, 15 verses, 10, 15 verses. He um, really puts some clear-cut things on the table for us. And look what he says here in verse 5. And we're just going to say a few things about this, or I'm just going to read a bit of it, and then I'm going I'm to kind of deal with it. Verse 5 says, look what it says there. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, and lust. I have two things that I want to share with you this morning, and the first really has to deal with what I would call a radically different discipleship that I would like us to consider in light of the fact of what we see Paul say here in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 5, Paul begins, he calls upon these Colossian believers to literally, as he's thinking about putting to death, therefore, and he walks down sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Then he talks about anger, wrath, malice. What he's really asking these Colossian believers to understand or to think about is how they're going to think and live and act very differently than how they used to think and live and act. So before they came to know Christ, you thought and lived and you acted a certain way, and now he's trying to make a distinction. He says, now as believers, this is how I want you to think and live and act. He calls upon them to put into practice what they've been learning in principle about Christ. That you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. And in effect, he is saying, now that we understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross, this is what it actually now means to follow him in daily life. So it's kind of the principle of it's great to come to church and hear the truth, but there's a way in which we actually live out and our feet are hitting the cement of the ground this next week where we act out in practice what we know in principle and this is what Paul's trying to talk with him up with these folks about so he launches into this series and this is this is quite interesting and it's quite difficult for many of us to even even swallow any of this really even learn any of it because he launches into this series of, of very radical behavioral imperatives that really are designed, if you will, if you can see them like this, they're really designed to give us kind of the, a nuts and bolts approach to discipleship. You could think of them as kind of biblical ethics, ways that disciples are supposed to think and live and act in the world. Now I want to give a side note here that I think is very important for us. Uh, many of you may be here today and you may not have come to the place, place where the scriptures are your rule and your authority for living. Maybe you're, maybe you're trying to find that out. Maybe you're trying to understand it. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you don't know if the Bible's true anymore. You're trying to check that out. You're trying to ask questions. Maybe you're not trying to ask questions at all. Maybe you've just decided. If, that is, if you're in that boat today, then you're going to struggle greatly with what I have to say to you today. It's really true. The scriptures are designed for us as people for our true north. They are our rule, our authority. 
Let me, let me offend you even more by telling you they are our absolute. We live in a very relativistic, subjective culture and society. And Paul here and in the scriptures is not trying to kind of ease us back in and kind of help us out a little bit. He's saying this is what the truth of the scripture has to say to you. That the role of the scripture has a very unique part to play in our lives and it's called rule. It's over our heads. It kings us. It's our authority. It's very different than our feelings. Many times I don't feel like, for instance, being married. I didn't feel like that this last week when my wife had a friend over and her friend brought four kids. And the house was just all and I wanted to watch the Olympics. I wanted to watch, you know, I'm involved in it. I want, you know, Apollo Anton Ono and downhill skiing. I'm standing up screaming. I'm loving it, you know. And, and they wanted to be, have the TV room. They had the, you know, they had the nice TV room because all of them couldn't go back to the bedroom. And I had to go back to the bedroom and had the bad TV. How terrible. <laughs> I didn't feel like being married. Wouldn't that have been nice for me to walk out to my wife and say, Honey, I just don't feel like being married tonight. Okay, you're not tonight. Well, how stupid, right? How, how ridiculous. The fact of the matter is, is that I took vows. That I'm under a rule. That I'm, 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 a, I'm a very loved peasant in another kingdom. God loves me, but I'm underneath the rule. So you're going to struggle today. A girl showed, uh, talked with me this last week. I was meeting with a young lady, and she began to tell me that she was on a, uh, did a mission, I think it was with, with YWAM or one of the mission organizations that she had done it with. And she had ended up talking with a young lady in a foreign country, and they began to build a relationship. This, this, this young lady didn't know uh, the Lord, and so as they began to develop this relationship, this young girl was 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 quite um, what should I say um, she had a lot of pain and problems and many many a lot of suffering that was going on in her life much of that was because her absolute avoidance of the cross and so she finally lo looked at uh, this girl who was on the mission trip and said well tell me about your faith I, I want to know about this faith we spent a lot of time together tell me about your faith and so she did and she told her about Christ and at, when she was all done, the, the young lady looked at her and she said, you know what, I see your faith and I want what you have, but I am not willing to give up the lifestyle that I have. And I, I kind of thought that was okay in a, in a sense of, well, at least she's going to tell you. Right? But she has decided in her life who her rule and her authority is. And who is it? It's her. And it, it would even be really ugly if we were to continue to peel back the onion and say, so that she has then took, taken the place of God in her life. She is her own God. And that's, very, that's a very raw way to say it, but it's really true. And Paul here, when he's talking about this, he, he has this implication that we are under the authority and the rule of the Scripture. And he's not apologizing. 
He's not sugarcoating it. He's not easing them into it. He's not saying, I want you to really go back and pray about this and come back and tell me if you, don't, if you, if you can you know, you know, control your sexual urges. He's not doing that. There's this uncompromising, crystal clear essence, if you will, to his communication. And he's got a goal in mind here. There's a goal in mind that's going on. And the goal in mind is, is that we as people are to live, and this is hard for me to, to say to you because it, it doesn't happen in my life. We, we as people are to live as radically, we're to live radically different lives than the world around us. And you've heard this talk probably a billion times at your church. You, you know, we all seem to have heard this. But I've, I've got something that I want you to consider today. And it's this. How in the world are we to live radically different lives? Should we all become monks? That would take away all the struggle and pains and problems in life, wouldn't it? Walk away, go to the desert, buy a cheap bathrobe and hum for the rest of our lives and cook bread and eat, drink wine. That'd be fun. How are we to do this? How are we to, under, how are we to actually live radically different lives? Because that's what Paul's talking about here when he's saying, I want you to put to death these things. Are you kidding me, Paul? Put to death whatever is, it belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. These are all fun things like Randy talked about last week. These are fun things. These aren't, these aren't things that we do wake up in the morning and say, oh, you know, I don't have to worry about that. These are all big issues for us. But how do we do it? How do we, how do we actually live this radical different life where Paul talks about this idea of putting to death these things and as children of God we understand it and I think the first thing that I want to share with you today is how do we really do that is we must understand what Christ has done for us we must understand what Christ has done for us if we're to live radically different lives as children of the cross then we have to understand what happened at the cross there's a connection that has to be made. And in verse 1 through 4, Paul gives us the connection. He says, since this, is, these, this has happened for you, then he comes down there and look at verse 5. He says, put to death. Therefore, because of what's happened, therefore, this is a natural kind of outgrowth of your understanding of what Christ has done for you. One of the things I want to share with you today is I always want I want us to be thinking about of always connecting our behavior out in the world or even on an everyday basis with the cross always connect your behavior with the cross why would we live radically different lives why would we do that this has been a problem for us for many of us that have grown up especially in the church and we have got kind of a weird motivation as to why we would live radically different lives. Why would we do it? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Some of us grew up in the church that said, this is what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to drink and you're not supposed to. I, I grew up in the culture that said, you're not supposed to dance. How horrible was that? You're not supposed to drink. You're not supposed to dance. You're not supposed to gamble. 
You're not supposed to. I mean, go down the line. And all it is is a bunch of do's and don'ts. And if we keep these rules, we'll become these perfect little Stepford Wives Christians, <laughs> robotic in all of our ways and smiling and everything is great and beautiful and everything's really a mess. Right? Why would we live radically different lives? Is it so that we can just be good neighbors and good people? Well, we would live radically different lives because that is the way that we, follow this now because kind of the whole thing hinges on this, why we would live radically different lives is because that, the, that is the exact way that we end up bringing glory to God. As a child of God, the ultimate motivation for our lives, for all of my behavior, for all of my relationships, for all these little nooks and crannies of my life is ultimately God's glory. It's, it sounds so oversimple, but it's so much harder than that to live that out and to understand it. But think about it for a minute. Since the beginning of time, God has been on a glory train. He's made many stops along the way. His covenant people are on that train. They are people of trust. A chosen royal priesthood. And when the train goes by, you hear him singing. And that song that you hear them singing is a song about the fame and the wonder of their Lord. That's, that's, what, that's what it is. Do we understand, do I understand is probably the better question, that my main business in life is to testify, to sing to the grace and the glory and the love and the majesty of God. That my actual motivation to be a different person would break, be so simple and so powerful as to bring glory to my master. It really is that. Have we complicated it? A people who would sing to the world through their different behavior that there is a king who lives, a God who is jealous for his glory in all the ways that we think and act and live. He gets the glory. He gets the glory with our time. He gets the glory with our stuff. He gets the glory with our money. He gets the glory in our marriages. He gets the glory in our marriage problems. He actually would even get the glory in our sex. He gets the glory. Jim Karen's just, I've inserted the names here that you don't know, know these folks, so it's nobody that you know, but Jim and Karen's marriage has been on the rocks for a long, long time. They're both stuck in the uh, wash cycle of what I would call self-glory. It's like a washing machine. And when you look down inside the washing machine, you see pride, and you see arrogance, and you see needing to win, and you see needing, you see needing to be right, and you see a pair of jeans down there that say pornography. You see a shirt that says lust, and it's just spinning. And it's all just going back. It has been going on for a long time. Maybe years. But guess what? 
they're starting to do something different. They're bored with the same old songs they have been singing to each other. They're starting to ask and answer a better question. And the better question is, how would God be glorified and honored in our marriage? How would God be glorified and honored in our marriage? There's a girl in this audience right now who goes to Vanderbilt. She's a junior. She's a sophomore. She's a senior. Whatever. There's a girl here who goes to Belmont. Whatever. Sophomore, junior, senior. She grew up in a Christian home. And she had some sense of biblical ethics and values. But when she got to school, they'd basically gone by the wayside. And she's exercised her freedom to the point where she's literally sick to her stomach. And she has no idea what to do because she's so covered in her shame. She's in the wash cycle. She's hurting. She gave her sexual treasure away to a young man who actually, they came to church together. He asked her to come to church. She thought that Christian boys were supposed to be better than non-Christian boys. <laughs> Little did she know. You mad at me yet? Little did she know that we have raised an entire generation of young men who call themselves believers, but apparently the gospel doesn't transcend to Friday night in the dorm room. Right? What do you think, fellas? What do those ladies know about Jesus as a result of spending time with us on Friday night? Do we have a responsibility on Friday night to honor the Lord? Could God actually be honored in the way we make our decisions on Friday and Saturday night? She is starting to ask different questions. And the question she's starting to ask is, Lord, how could you possibly be honored in my life? Even in the smallest sexual corners of my life, how can your name be praised? Think about it now. Not how can my name be praised. A lot of the problems in my life are due to the fact that I'm on the wrong train. I'm on a glory train. It's just called the me glory train. You follow? It's not the God glory train. What would happen if we had just simply asked the question, God, how can I, in all the small, medium, and large areas of my life, simply bring glory to your name? to be able to sing your name. Our behavior doesn't ever stand alone. Our behavior is always connected to what I would call wood and words. The wood is the cross and the words are the lyrics of a song that is sung about how God is honored and given fame and glory in our lives. It's always that way. What does Paul mean now? Second point, last point. 
What does Paul mean now in verse 5 there? Look what it says. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality and impurity and lust. If you're a believer in Jesus today, I want to talk to you a little bit today about what it means to be, what it means to put things to death. But if you're a believer in Jesus today, if you'd call yourself a Christian, then you are what the Bible considers regenerated. You've been new birthed. You have a hope and a future in this life, and you also have a future in the next, but st sin still remains in your mortal body. And that presents the massive problem of living the Christian life because there is this war going on in our souls, this kind of this smoking cauldron, if you will. Picture it now, of sex, lust, impurity, greed, anger, rage, malice. I want to make sure that I let, let you know there is a hope. The hope is the Holy Spirit living inside of you that gives you the strength and the power to live the life that God has asked you to live, Romans 8.13. And I'll get to that in a second. And Paul says here, here's what I want you to do about this smoking cauldron that's in your life. Gentlemen, you're probably going to want to pay special attention because a lot of the things that are going to be said here are, are really important for us to hear as men. And I'm not excluding the ladies by any means. Here's what I want you to do with the smoking cauldron. I want you to look at sexual immorality. Take sexual immorality, and that word right there refers to any sex outside of the marriage relationship. Sexual immorality is, is an all-encompassing term that says any sex outside of the biblically defined marriage relationship. You may be here today and you may be struggling with being bisexual. You may be here today and you may be struggling with homosexuality. And you may have come up with some kind of rationalization, maybe even from the Bible, that that is an accepted behavior. And um, my friend, I, I, I have to tell you that I'm glad you're here today. And we're very glad that you're here to be on your journey of understanding what God has to say to you. But the Bible says no to that. It's very clear. It's, it's not even an issue that I would have to stand up and tell it's kind of wishy-washy. The Bible is extremely clear about it. The Bible defines and says that sex is a beautiful thing to be held in the context and confines of the marriage relationship. But we know that, don't we? Do we? But if we take sexual immorality, that's what the term's being used here. That's what Paul's trying to get to. If you were to say impurity there, look at impurity. It says that basically the point there is kind of this, the contamination of character that comes with immoral behavior. Which, to tell you, I, I have that in my life. I struggle with that. Lust, we all struggle with that. Any uncontrolled sexual urges, what does Paul say? Paul says, put it to death. Paul says, kill it, kill it. Your Bible may say, mortify it. Paul doesn't say, just take a look at it and pray about it. Hold it and look at it, which we do. Sometimes our, one of the things that we could have a great talk on is what, 
what sanctified imagination could look like. Our imaginations many times are our rulers. And the idea here that Paul says is I want you to kill it. In my house, you all know that I have all these ladies in my house. And I just, one, one just got married and another one's getting married. Thank you, Lord. It's great. And the, it's a good thing. And the, but I am and have been forever and will be until I go to heaven, the absolute unequivocal vermin killer in my home. All vermin is my job. When you get married, there's, 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 you, you split the duties. Like my wife does not do garbage. Just, it's accepted. I do. Okay? I don't do dishes. I cook. See, just all these things. But when it comes to vermin, especially spiders, daddy. I'll get calls from work <laughs> to come home and get a mouse. Terrible. But spiders, oh my goodness. Spiders. A couple months ago, I'm laying in bed and somebody runs, one of the girls running into my room. Screaming at about 2 o'clock in the morning, Dad, come right now. There's something flying around in my room. And she's beside herself, you know. And I, I, who, I hate to get, to wake up in the middle of a beautiful sleep where you're like dreaming of Pebble Beach. <laughs> I'm, I stand up and, I, you know, they're, they're, they're in my boxers and my t-shirt. And they, come on, you know, I, I run up the stairs. It's a bat. It's a bat that had come up in, up, up into the room, flying, you know, and of course the flying, it doesn't do this perfect, it's not like a fly, it's you know, like that. And the girls are going, well, get it, Dad, get it, get it. And they're all just, they're all in the corners, just, oh, like this, you know, and here's, but here's what they won't tell you is that I, so I try the guy thing, you know, well, I'm half asleep, I try punching in the air, you know. <laughs> what in the world am I going to do? And, and I say, well, and, and finally Shelby looks at me and she goes, what are you going to do, Dad? And I said, what do you mean? What am I going to do? I'm going to kill it. And, and here's what they all said, oh, no. <laughs> no, no. And I wanted to say, great, girls, go to sleep. See ya. So I had to do the politically correct version of killing the bat, which was getting a blanket and throwing it up in the air a million times until I got it. Isn't that how we are with our sin? It's exactly how we are. We're gonna put up a, we're gonna put a blanket and cover it. We're gonna do the politically correct thing, but Paul's not saying that here. Paul's saying I want you to kill it. I want you to extinguish it. It's a very radical image that Paul uses. I'm closing it up, so follow this last piece. But it is a radical image. And it's much like the image Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus had a deal. Maybe Jesus was a righty. He had something in his head going on with right. But what Jesus wasn't saying was that that's what you that's what you actually don't cut out your eye or take off your hand. He's, he's talking to us about, now follow this now, the ultimate seriousness and the diabolical nature of the things, that cauldron going on inside of us. It's very serious. It's very, and so it needs a serious solution. We have to be radical as we think about these things in our life. And this is, 
this is the point of conflict for us as I've come together with this because this massively, massively speaks against the culture. This is not a serious problem in our culture. In the ancient world during the, the church at Colossae and before this, there, were, there was this, there was this um, it's all good. Sex is good. It's a good way for us to express ourselves. There weren't these confines and controls. Everything was okay. It's just about expressing yourself. That was in the ancient world. Does that sound similar today to our city? Sure it does. Sure it does. What Paul is talking about here when he says put to death, he's literally talking about killing it, taking the life out of it, extinguishing it. Burying it, strangling it, murdering it, gouging it out, throwing it away. And that's important to get. That's important to understand. So even as people, of God, we are called to put things to death. One of the things I wanted to ask you today as I wrap it up is this. Is our problem that we're literally breathing life into the very things that kill our souls? Like sexual immorality and lust and impurity? Is our pro so Paul would say put them to death. Is our problem is, is that if we're sitting in front of a computer screen at 1130 at night, some night, am I then, am I killing or am I giving life to that? Am I birthing? Two different images that Paul uses the one, and it seems like a lot of our lives are about the other, right? Could it be why Jesus, the very reason why Jesus and Paul deals with such radical language and seriousness of sin is because he know, they know that, that the sins of the flesh can literally dismantle our souls? Could it be that God knows far more about this topic than we could ever know in a million lifetimes? Could it be that? Or, does it, is it, or, or is it just this? Well, God's given us a bunch of rules, just don't have sex. Is that what it is? Could it be that God, has, God loves us so much that he wants to protect his children from soul damage? Gentlemen, I know you know this, and I don't want to shame you, and I want you to know that you have a hope today, but I want you to know something. I believe that pornography is dismantling our souls. As we relate to this world, to the women in our world, if it's our girlfriend or our wives, and many, I know many of you need help. Our souls are at stake. First Peter 2.11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. And this is a psalm that really hit me last week that I just love. It's David lamenting to his Lord when he says this in Psalm 73, 21. 
when my soul was embittered and my heart was grieved. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you and you hold my right hand. Could it be that our souls get so embittered that we literally become like a junkyard dog in the corner wanting to bite the very hand of the Lord that feeds us? Have many of us as men and women become literal beasts towards our loving God? Has our soul become that embittered? Maybe your soul's embittered here today for many other reasons. In the 1940s, C.S. Lewis heard from many of his peers in the British Academy that sex was nothing but an appetite like that for food. Once we recognized this, they said, and began to simply have sex whenever we wanted it, people would cease to be driven mad by desire for love and sex. Lewis doubted this and proposed a thought experiment. Suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a, co a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a piece of lamb or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? One critic said that if he found a country in which such striptease acts with food were popular, he would conclude that the people of that country were starving. And that's our country. We're starving. Especially people who don't know the Lord, they're starving. And the only way they'll be filled is by our Creator, by a man who died on the cross, by our Lord. And that's the same case for you and I too. Thank you, my friends. Let's pray. God, we need so much. This is such a, a very acute message for many of us. It's, it's one for me. So much. I thank you, Lord, that you say that by your Spirit, we are not a hopeless people. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would even bring power and strength to Especially today, I just feel very strongly for the men in this room today. And I pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would minister to them and not Lord, I, I know that many of them live in shame and feel very defeated. And Lord, I, I pray so much for their freedom that comes from you in the cross and Lord I, I just I pray that you would minister you Holy Spirit trying God minister to us thank you for what you say in this word even though it's difficult for us to hear give it even give, we even need your strength to even want to glorify you in all the other areas of our lives Lord we praise you we thank you that you, you're such a loving, loving Father who cares even about these things in our lives. May these words be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your name, amen.